as we look specifically at the burial of Christ over the last several weeks, as we've examined the trials that Jesus went through, as we've looked at the actual events that led up to his crucifixion, we turn our attention now to the burial. And as we think about what we've studied so far, the unthinkable has actually happened, that Jesus, the beloved teacher, the miracle worker, the friend, has been unjustly tried by both a Jewish and a Roman court. There were fabricated charges brought against Jesus by the religious leaders, which eventually led him to Pilate and to Herod both of whom examined Jesus and declared him to be not guilty of anything deserving of death. But in an effort to appease the religious leaders, Pilate nonetheless had him turned over to the Romans for a scourging, a brutal beating that would normally take people within inches of their life. And upon the completion of that scourging, Jesus was mocked with a crown of thorns on his head and a mock scepter in his hand, which was then taken from him and used to beat him. And they spat upon him and slapped him in the face. And then they strapped the crossbeam of his instrument of death to his shoulders, paraded him through the streets as a walking dead man, and led him to Calvary. And there he was hung on a cross between sinful men as an atonement for the sins of mankind. And now he's breathed his last breath, and he has cried out with a shout of victory that it is finished. And as we think about the brutality, as we think about the shock and the horror that is a part of this narrative, we must always be reminded that this is in exact accordance with the predetermined plan of God to accomplish His plan of redemption for His people. And along the way, it has fulfilled several prophecies which unmistakably prove to us that this is exactly the way God had ordained it to go. So as Jesus is breathing his last on the cross, his onlookers take in this shock of a physical spectacle, once believing him to be the physical king that would establish independence from Roman rule and reestablish the glory days of Israel. His mother standing there looking on with horror as she watches her firstborn son breathe his last breath. And so Jesus, the one ushered into Jerusalem just a few days earlier, heralded with the shouts of Hosanna in the streets, is now dead. One of the most unsettling aspects of death is the element of surprise. As we think about death, that death, as we think about that, death frequently comes suddenly and unexpectedly, leaving words unsaid, plans unfinished, dreams unrealized, and hopes unfulfilled. But this was not the case with Jesus, however. Death did not surprise him, for he knew the hour was at hand, and he knew that this was the path laid out before him, and he knew that this was the reason that he came. He himself would say in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Now, that does not excuse the culpability of the Romans or of the Jewish leaders. 
Jesus prophetically said this was what was going to happen to him, that he would be turned over to the hands of sinful men, and this is what would bring about his death. So now as we move to the time immediately following the crucifixion of Christ, we observe the burial of Christ. We're going to look at verses 31 through 42 of chapter 19, and this will conclude our study of John 19. Verse 31 begins, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had, come, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb is nearby, they laid Jesus there. So in these 12 verses together we're going to look at, we're going to see this divided into two very basic points of outline. Number one, we're going to look at the hypocritical. The hypocritical is identified for us in the beginning part of verse 31. Then the Jews, the Jews here is not the people as as a whole, it is specifically the religious leaders, which is the way John would frequently describe them as the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. So these are the Jews who feigned holiness. Remember, these are the elders, these are the individuals who comprised what was called the Sanhedrin. They were the most righteous, the most educated, the most respected people in all of Israel. The Sanhedrin was made up of all the smaller communities and smaller local councils where the most respected would gather into Jerusalem as the national council, the Sanhedrin. And so these are the Jews who are feigning their holiness as they are making preparations to get on with the business at hand, and that is the Passover celebration. This is not the first time we have seen this facade of righteousness being displayed by the religious leaders. If you think about the Gospel of John, it isn't there quite as much as it is in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, where Jesus has reserved his harshest words for those who were responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people. He called them vipers. He called them blind guides. He said that they were men they were men full of dead men's bones, that their lives were like whitewashed tombs, that they were full of sin and uncleanness, and they were neglective of mercy and justice and faithful and faithfulness. 
If you think about all of the sinful people that Jesus encountered in His days, He always spoke to them with words of mercy and grace and a specific invitation to faith and belief. But for the religious leaders, He chastised them for this continual hypocrisy and this outward expression of righteousness that was devoid of any authenticity in the lives that they lived as the godly men of Israel. This day is the day of preparation. It is the preparation for the Passover feast. It is the holiest and the most sacred of all the Jewish celebrations and festivals. One of three where it was required that every Jew would travel into Jerusalem for the sacrifice to pay the taxes that they were responsible for to gather together as a local nation unified in their sovereign God who ruled over them. This specific Passover celebrates the exodus of the Israelites from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians when God sent the death angel to wipe out the firstborn in all of Egypt. But the death angel would pass over the homes of the Israelites who had taken the sacrificial blood of the goat or of the lamb and had wiped their doorpost with it, and the angel of death would pass over them and spare the firstborn. This is the holiest and the highest day in all of Jewish religious worship, and this is the day that they were trying to preserve in this feigned holiness. On the holiest day of the year, the day that the Lamb was to be offered as an atoning sacrifice for the nation of Israel, where he would on this day only, the high priest, enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of Yahweh. This is the day that Jesus is dead on the cross as the true atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And the religious leaders who had violated most, most all of their own legal procedures in order to impose a death sentence on Jesus on the eve of the holiest day of the year are hypocritically concerned about how these bodies of these crucified men are going to ruin their holy day. Now it's not known to us whether these other two individuals would have been crucified on that day, but there's no doubt that the religious leaders were directly responsible for Jesus' death on the cross on the day of Passover, and it is very likely that these other two individuals were just thrown into the mix as a way of rounding out this brutal spectacle of death by crucifixion. So in this feigned righteousness, the religious leaders are concerned about defiling the land. Their concern is that these dying bodies on the cross, these dead bodies on the day of the Passover, would in fact defile the land. Now Romans would usually leave the dead bodies on these crosses and let them rot. They would let the scavenging animals come and eat away at the decaying flesh and eventually there would be nothing more than a pile of bones on the ground and the remnant of the cross with the individual placard of the individual's crime that brought about his crucifixion. The religious leaders didn't want these crosses to tarnish this holy day and so most believe that in order to accommodate what was prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 20 to 20, 21, 
verses 22 and 23, we read these words. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, it was not the Jewish typical procedure to hang somebody on a tree and bring about their death. They would stone an individual. But in the Old Testament days, when the nation of Israel was conquering the promised land and they defeated a nation, they would generally find the king and they would kill him and then they would publicly display him on a tree as an act of humiliation, as a way of communicating the total desolation of that nation which now belonged to Israel. So the religious leaders who are responsible for Jesus' crucifixion are concerned about the defilement of their land with these dying and or dead bodies, but it's ironic that they were totally unconcerned about their own defilement in bringing about the murder of this man, Jesus, who is, in fact, the Son of God. There's no thought about how they had rigged the trial. There was no consideration about the false witnesses that they had rounded up to testify against him. There was no consideration over the way they had steamrolled this this trial in order to have Jesus imposed a death sentence upon him. They were most concerned about the defilement of the land and had no concern about their own spiritual standing before the Lord. So in order to save themselves from the defilement of the land, they went to Pilate and asked for the legs to be broken. They went to Pilate and said, break the legs. Verse 31b, Then the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now remember, it was the Jewish, excuse me, the Roman tradition to let the bodies hang on the cross and, and bring about their own natural death. But sometimes, as an act of expediency, if an individual wasn't dying, they would actually go out and break the legs. And this was a brutal event. They would take a a long metal rod and hit the legs like a baseball bat, and it would crush the legs, and it would bring about excruciating pain, sometimes continual loss of blood. But what it really did was it brought up a much more quick death process. So those who were suffering from crucifixion, who were lingering on the cross and not dying, which was not really the concern of the Romans, the cross was designed to bring about as much pain and suffering as possible, and that would be a determent to would-be criminals. But when you were hanging on a cross, there was tremendous pressure on your abdomen. Now, if you remember, when you were hung on a cross, sometimes your hands were tied around the cross beam, and sometimes your hands were nailed to the cross beam, as, as was the case for Jesus. And so over time, your arms would grow tired, and you would have the inability to pull yourself up in order to get a breath because of the weight of your sagging body. And so in a in a way to bring about a speedier death, they would break the legs so that you would no longer be able to push yourself up in order to get another breath. So breaking the legs would bring death very, very quickly and it would cause asphyxiation because there was no way 
for the diaphragm to expand and contract and for the lungs to take in and expel air. So this is what the, Roman leaders, the Jewish leaders asked the Romans to do to bring about a quickness to the death because they were concerned about their land being defiled. And so we continue in verses 32 and 33. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that, his, that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And so Jesus had died much sooner than most who were crucified. Mark records that Jesus' crucifixion began at about 9 o'clock on that Friday morning, and he also records that Jesus was dead at about 3 o'clock that same afternoon. And so by Mark's record-keeping, it appears that Jesus was on the cross for approximately six hours, but it was not uncommon for those on the cross to linger for a couple of days. Verse 34 goes on to say, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And so instead of breaking Jesus' legs... Because Jesus appeared to be dead, the soldier jabs Jesus with his spear in his side to make sure that he is, in fact, really and truly dead. Now, there's a lot of speculation here about the significance of John describing that blood and water had poured out from the chest of Jesus or the side of Jesus when he was, when he was stabbed by the Roman spear. Some look for some kind of an elaborate medical explanation. Some say that Jesus' heart burst over its brokenness of his dying and of the sin. Some look for some kind of symbolic significance related to baptism or communion. Some look for fulfillment in Jesus' own proclamation that he was the fount of living water. But the reality is all of these speculations about the significance of blood and water pouring forth are really just that. They are speculation. They can't be affirmed anywhere in Scripture. There's no verification of any kind of prophecy. And when we go too far in the speculation, what it tends to do is it tends to allegorize the narrative instead of it being an historical account of the death of Christ. It's important to note that John's emphasis here is that Jesus was really and truly dead, and that he is not trying to make some kind of a veiled connection to some other spiritual reality. Now, we see this in the editorial note that John provides as an eyewitness to the events, which become even more important, excuse me, become even more important after Jesus' resurrection. So verse 35, John says editorially, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus was, in fact, really and truly dead. John's rationale in providing these details is so that there would be no doubt amongst his readers that Jesus was, in fact, dead. Now, we must remember that there are many, many in this unbelieving world who don't believe that Jesus really was, in fact, dead. There is this theory called the swoon theory, which teaches that Jesus, because of the shock to his body, went into some kind of a deep trance, and it wasn't until he was taken into the coolness of the stone tomb 
that he was revived and then came back to life and, and then escaped a couple of days later. There's also the theory that the sour wine that Jesus took was actually a sedative that put Jesus into a deep sleep, like a coma, and he was not, in fact, really dead. And this is one of the reasons why John brings about these details, is to say that these Romans who were experts in the act of crucifixion, saw that he was already dead and saw no need to break his legs, but they stabbed him in his side with his spear, and John saw blood and water flow out, and it confirms the truth that Jesus was in fact really and truly dead. Now, if there is within the alleged believing community that Jesus did not in fact die, then that means he is not an atoning sacrifice. That means that our sin has not been covered, that we don't stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. It's all been a ruse, and we are hopeless, and we are dead in our sin because there has not been an atonement made for us. So John wants us, the readers, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was, in fact, dead, and the death of Christ, as John reports here, brings about continued fulfillment of prophecy. Now, Jesus dying more quickly on the cross than most ever would brings about the fulfillment of prophecy in two specific ways. Number one, there are no broken bones. Well, John will tell us why that's important in verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. So this single point of prophecy that John points out as he editorializes the cross of Christ and his coming burial of Christ, this single prophecy is fulfilled in two very specific ways. So according to God's instructions, in preparation of the Passover lamb, it says that not a bone of the Passover lamb is to be broken. We read this in Numbers 9.12. They shall leave none of it, the sacrificial lamb, until morning, nor break a bone of it, according to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. Now, if you were to read this in the Old Testament, and if you were to push this forward onto the death of Christ, and remember that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that there is a symbolic fulfillment in Jesus as the atoning sacrificial Lamb of God who did not have a single broken bone that brought about his death. Now the second way that this specific prophecy is fulfilled is much more literal and it's spelled out for us in Psalm 34 and in this psalm it depicts the future provider and deliverer that God will give to Israel at some point in the future. Psalm 34:20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. You see, these seemingly insignificant points are important for the Jewish 
reader to understand that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of these prophecies and does in fact fulfill what was required of the Passover lamb. This is part of what Paul would argue at length when he would go into a new city and he would immediately go into the synagogue and he would begin to teach and debate and prove that Jesus was in fact the Christ. Now the second point of prophecy that John identifies for us in this narrative is that he shall be pierced. Verse 37, John says, and again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now this singular prophecy is also fulfilled in two very specific ways. All the way book, back in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, here's what God says through the prophet Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem this spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. I will promise you that any believing Jew who would go back and read this account in the book of Zechariah and have the remembrance of Jesus on the cross brought to them would mourn over the Jewish participation in the death of their Messiah. Part of this verse is fulfilled in the crucifixion narrative that we've just read is that Jesus is pierced while he is dead on the cross. But the other part of this prophecy will be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming in the future. When the lost mass of humanity recognizes the one that they have rejected, in fact, is the King of Kings and is the Lord of Lords, and he is the one who comes to visit them in judgment. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. You see, when the unbelieving world stands before the risen Christ who comes on the throne of judgment, they will mourn over their culpability in His death by rejecting Him and by not appropriating through faith His sacrificial death for them personally. And they will understand that they are to be separated from Christ for all of eternity. And what a terrible terrible day of mourning that will be. I find it amazing that these two simple points of prophecy are fulfilled in the death of Christ and they are applied in two ways, both figuratively and literally. So we've taken a look at number one in our outline. We've looked at the hypocrites, the Jews who feigned their holiness by striving to preserve the holiness of the land ignored their culpability of of Christ's death on the cross, ordered the legs of Christ to be broken, and in doing so, have fulfilled prophecy that seals their own responsibility. Number two in our outline, we see the faithful. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, 
but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Verse 39a, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came. So here we have, in the contrast of this hypocritical religious religious leadership, are the individuals Joseph and Nicodemus. As we look at Joseph and Nicodemus, there's a couple of of important points that we're going to look at. First one is this. They were secret disciples. They were not publicly pronouncing their belief in Christ as the Messiah. They had not demonstrated their faith in Him publicly. But what they believed in private was now going to be in full view of the religious leadership of which they were both apart. Mark 15.43 gives us this information. Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph opposed the decision to condemn Jesus. We read this in Luke 23, verses 50 and 51. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This is the way the gospel writers describe Joseph of Arimathea. Now Nicodemus, as we remember in our study all the way back in John chapter 3, was also a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Jesus called him the teacher of the nation of Israel. Both of these men were highly educated. They were thoroughly respected. They took very seriously their responsibilities as a part of the religious leadership. But unfortunately, they were grossly outnumbered in the plan to kill Jesus. While they privately and quietly opposed it, They gave in to the decision of the mass and were unwilling objectors to the plan to have Jesus killed. They were fearful of standing up for Jesus. Now John normally takes a very unpleasant view of secret disciples. He says in John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43, Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So they're very young and very immature in their faith, They were not yet willing to take the stand necessary to be associated with the disciples of Christ. But John paints them in a positive light here in this narrative. Why does he do this? Well, the common belief is very simply this. It is that the death of Jesus had a dramatic effect on their lives. It had taken their private belief and it had compelled them to public faithfulness. Most assuredly, as they sat as participants in this mock trial of Christ, they knew that he had done nothing deserving of death. They knew that the religious leaders had rounded up false 
witnesses against him. They knew that Pilate and Herod had declared them to be not guilty, but the death of Christ was the dividing line in the sand for them, and they could no longer sit quietly on the sidelines and not put all their chips into the pot of following Jesus as a faithful disciple. What they once believed in private, now they are going to publicly pronounce. They have been outed, if you will, not by somebody's investigation, but by their own commitment to Christ. What they were once committed to in private, they now, they now announce publicly by not only asking for the body of Christ, but by making the necessary arrangements and preparation for his burial. In doing so, there was tremendous personal risk and in their minds, absolutely zero personal gain. Much like the disciples of Christ, most in Jerusalem thought that Jesus, who was heralded into the city in this parade-like atmosphere, was going to be the Messiah, overthrow the Romans, put up a physical throne to rule Israel from, But as Jesus was dead on the cross, their hopes were dashed, and and yet they still went forward at great personal risk, with likely no personal gain to them, and participated in the burial of Christ. In doing so, they not only stood opposed to the actions of the Sanhedrin, of which they were now members, they also risked excommunication from religious worship, They would most likely have to give up their positions. They would be excommunicated from religious worship and most likely all other social functions as well as any other standing they had in the community. They would be viewed as traitors and they would be treated as outcasts. They were ceremonially defiled because they have been exposed to and have handled a dead body and made them ceremonially unfit to participate in the communal Passover celebration, the holiest day of the year. But their inward commitment made up for their outward uncleanness, which is just the opposite of the rest of the religious leaders who were outwardly as clean as you could get, but were inwardly ravenous wolves driven by a satanic desire to kill Jesus. The third thing we see in their commitment here is that they are reverent in death. Verse 39b and 40, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Joseph brings with him about 65 pounds worth of fragrant spices and oils and modern weight standards. This large amount is typical of something used for a king or a dignitary, and this shows the kind of reverence that they had for Christ in preparing him for his death. Now, the Jews didn't embalm like the Egyptians did, so they tried to cover the smell of decomposition as best they could, and so they would infuse the linen wrappings with these oils and aloes and spices in order to contain the 
the smell of decomposition as much as they possibly could. Verse 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We know from Matthew's account that this tomb belonged to Joseph. It is most likely his own personal tomb that he would one day be buried in. So both he and Nicodemus make a costly personal sacrifice in the burial of Christ, both physically and socially, as they make a very defined stand for Christ. Now there's a a final piece of important information provided here by John in verse 42. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since a tomb is nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now the Passover was fast approaching. Passover began at sundown on Friday. So all the preparations had to be completed before the Passover began and all work had to come to a stop in honor of Passover. So this final detail provides authentication of Jesus' own statement and prophecy about his own death and his own resurrection. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so using Jewish counting methods, any part of a day is considered a day, and any part of a night is considered a night. And so Jesus being in the tomb on Friday before sundown would count as the first day, All day Saturday would count as the second day and then the second night. And then the early morning hours of Sunday would constitute the completion of this third day. So God's one and only Son, the Lamb of God, the one who fulfills all the law and all the prophets, has been laid to rest, fulfilling all of the prophecy about His death. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And that's what we've got to remember in this narrative of the cross of Christ and in His burial, this terrible day of Passover where they don't know what's going on and they are confined to their houses. They can't really go out and do anything. They are lamenting the death of Christ, wondering what's going to happen next. They are at the depths of despair, but just in a few short hours, it's all going to change as the sun rises on Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that the end of the story isn't the brutal death of Christ and His reverent burial in the tomb. We give You thanks, Father, that in His death He has conquered sin and death, becoming the atoning sacrifice And will in just a few short hours be victoriously raised to life everlasting. Father, we thank you so much that in our faith in Christ, as a result of our union with him, that we will also be raised just like he was raised. That we will conquer sin and death through the risen Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Father, how we pray that you would continually remind us of this great sacrifice that you made for our salvation. May you find in us a deeper, greater desire to honor you, to love you, and to serve you because of who you are and what you've done, knowing that you are deserving 
of our very best. We pray these things in Jesus' name.